They say that getting in shape is hard, but no one told you about the struggle. It's time for you to get healthy, but business and family make life complicated. Discover all the high-performance secrets that founders and busy entrepreneurs use to ensure they stay fit and lean, no matter how busy they get. This podcast is a reminder to use those secrets, which make getting in shape easy and stress-free, while doing it in a way that fits your busy lifestyle. And ultimately, this will make you a better performer at work and home. You're listening to The High Performance Founder with your host, Dan Goh. Welcome to the podcast, Jordan. Thank you so much for coming. I really do appreciate it. Uh, one thing I want to say before we start is the fact that uh, before we are actually starting this podcast interview, uh, we hadn't seen each other in years. And uh, we had amazing laughs. We actually <laughs> we actually had a couple of great laughs uh, between each other. And one thing I want to say about Jordan is uh, is the fact that uh, you've also you've actually been a friend and uh, a little bit of a mentor to me in the relationship space. Uh, I really do appreciate your friendship. I really do value your knowledge. And yeah, man, welcome to the podcast. Honored to be here. Thanks for having me, Dan. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to start with uh, a little something else right now. Okay. So you're newly married. Okay. Living in the, the woods, you know, living in the woods of wherever it is you're living right now. So I want to take this uh, opportunity to bring up this blog post that you wrote uh, a while ago, which is called, I used to think men who got married were idiots. And in it, you actually said, I used to think men who got married were idiots, or if they weren't idiots, uh, they were at least undesirable enough that they had to settle for whoever chose for them. Because why else would you tie yourself to someone for life if the reason weren't that you didn't have any other romantic options? I mean, seriously getting married, you know, maybe. And then you, you went through a preamble of all the reasons why uh, one might not want to get married. And then at the end of it, you came out with, well, maybe the real nightmare would be seeing love as a perpetual threat, keeping life at a safe distance and dying, having never truly let anyone in and living with your heart in a thick casing of armor because of the accurate assumption that marrying's someone that you loved would be a significant spiritual death of your ego because any relationship founded on control, fear, criticism, mistrust is doomed to failure. In order for any relationship to thrive, we do have to set down the protective mechanisms that once served a purpose, but no longer do. So come to think of it, there is no greater growth tool that is available to us than to bind ourselves to another and allow all of our stuff to come up and fall away piece by piece. So first things first is how is married life treating you, brother? <laughs> it's the best. It has been the necessary next layer of ego death. And yeah, both my wife and I didn't think that it would be that different of a feeling. You know, we'd already lived together for years. We own a house together. Um, it's no, it's absolutely been different. And different in only positive ways. It's been the best. How did you get from almost being anti-marriage to being this proponent for marriage? 
I think that the desires that we hold most deeply are often the most tender. And so I don't think I was ever actually in my heart, in my body, in my soul, in my spirit against marriage. I wanted nothing more than marriage. And because it held such a tender, true spot in my heart, you know, that would by necessity be the thing that my ego, my mind would need to attack the most because just like, you know, you have a big social media presence, just like people who, you know, see a billionaire or some super successful person. And then the comment section is riddled with people being like, Oh, I hate them. What a terrible person. (laughs) How dare they? Like those people have a desire for more money. And so of course, you know, jealousy is just the ego attacking the thing that they actually desire. And so I very much wanted marriage through my entire life. There were just some darker years in my 20s where my mind really, you know, I gave my mind a long leash in demonizing, making wrong the thing that I always wanted. I always wanted a wife. I always wanted to have a family. I always wanted X, Y, and Z. And these things, because they were the most true, my mind wanted to fight them the most. Yeah. I feel like the ego... Uh, fights the thing that you fear and want the most is actually the thing that you fear the most is the thing that you might want the most. And then your ego would actually come up with these rationalizations to be like, well, you know, this is the reason why you don't want it. Okay. Cause it, but the underneath the surface is like, no, because you would actually get your shit served to you. And that would be the biggest risk that you would ever take in your life, which is to love another person for the rest of your life. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that you read a certain piece of that article because I feel, you know, in that particular piece, I kind of framed it as like, you know, marriage, really tethering yourself to someone for decades is the ultimate spiritual death. I actually think that three really big perpetual growth edges in that same vein are being married, being self-employed and being a parent. Mm -hmm. And you are all three. And so (laughs) you can, you know, I'm sure there's some resonance in the theme of, you know, they're, they're all mirrors. They're very close mirrors of, I can't not be in a relationship with my stuff all the time because as loving of of a husband or as present and patient of a father, as, you know, altruistic and caring and giving of an entrepreneur you are, there are going to be moments where your human is just like, man, I'm tired. Like, this is tough. Uh, you know, I, I see myself being caught in this loop and I know that I'm not learning some lesson, but what is it? And, you know, and you also have a, a journaling practice, you know, at least last time we talked that was very consistent. So, you know, having this house of mirrors where you're always seeing your stuff, like you really can't hide or play small when you're in such a tight relationship with life. And I don't mean tight as in like, you know, white knuckling and rigid, uh, if anything, the opposite, you can't be white knuckling life or rigid when you're a parent, when you're a business owner, like the whole thing is a dance. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, that was a big growth edge of mine over the last year going from a, a dating renter to a married homeowner living in the city, living in the countryside. And today's life, you know, has always been my heart's truth. It's just like, wow, do I really get to have this much daily joy? Like, yes, there's challenge. Yes, there's more responsibility. 
But you know, this was always the true thing. I just wasn't letting myself have it for a number of years, or it wasn't true to do yet. Hmm. And uh, if people don't know uh, about you, which is the fact that, uh, well, let's just put it out there. You and I have uh, extensive dating experience, right? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, and we, we have histories. <laughs> we have <Yes>. histories. <laughs> and, and thankfully, our, our partners do not hold that history uh, against us. So when it comes to relationships and marriage, what do you feel are the biggest differences now between being in a relationship and being in a marriage right now? I think the biggest thing that initially comes to mind is just the the new added level of care that you take in every interaction when you know, you know, depending on what human lifespan ends up being in our <laughs> lifetime, I'm going to be with this person for 50 years, 70 years, 100 years, who knows? And so... I think, you know, similar to if someone said, hey, Dan, you can never work in a different business, different field, different job at all. The thing you're doing now, you have to do it for the next 60 years. You would put a different level of thought and intention and care, you know, even if it's just a, an 8% difference, like you're already bringing a lot of yourself and your heart to your work. But if you knew, okay, I can't leave. This is it. You know, we are in love prison together voluntarily. And so if that's the case, and this is our shared space that we're energetically, you know, taking up together, how are we going to treat that? You know, with that much more love and intention, because, okay, this is it. It, it reminds me of uh, conversations that I have sometimes with uh, my wife, with Linda, you know, yeah, it's everyone. Did. You know my wife' his name is Linda. Actually, if you guys don't know anything, uh, Jordan was uh, the what do you call it? The guy officiant. that marries us, the officiant. He was the officiant at at our marriage, uh, and I chose Jordan specifically because uh, specifically because I uh, mean I just respect you. I respect the shit out of you when it comes to relationships and love. So that's a very fun fact right there. Um, so something I realized when I go through, let's just say like these debates and these things that one could consider arguments with your significant other, it's like we're faced with these two uh, choices. One, we could just, uh, we could just like brush it off and just like not even like work on it and not even talk about it. Or we could sit there in the, in the fucking fire and try to control our emotions as much as possible and work through this thing that that could cause uh, severe damage down the line. And when, when we think about like, let's just say businesses and when we think about like relationships, uh, especially marriages, we're not thinking in years, we're thinking in decades. So, you know, when I think about like the 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 actions that we take in our own relationships, it's like, you know, we could, we could actually like white knuckle it, you know, and, and we could have, or we could actually brush it off, but staying in that fire and actually working it out and getting to uh, an understanding of each other, that's going to actually contribute most to the decades rather than the years of the relationship. Totally. I mean, it's like, are we going to live with this low level static noise mm -hmm. that will slowly escalate forever? Or are we going to, yeah, voluntarily turn the heat up on this thing really bring the fire, you know, meditate in the fire of the thing and like, let it truly come through us. And by voluntarily taking it up to a nine for a short period of time, 
can it then go to a two and a one and a zero mm. and actually be resolved? Yeah, 100%. So what made you realize that uh, your wife, Demetra, uh, what made Dimitra. you realize that? Dimitri? Dimitra. Dimitra. Oh, yeah. I have, man, my, my name's, I got to get better with these. All it's right. a unique name. Dimitra. Yes, it is. So what made you realize that she was the girl that you wanted to spend uh, the rest of your life with? I mean, the biggest thing is like there are a bunch of moments that happened in a relationship where I saw her character, her behavior, and I was just like, wow, this is a really solid, phenomenal woman. But I think, you know, the the deepest longstanding reason that I've felt from day one from before we met in person, because we lived in different countries before we got married and lived together, was that my my body, my heart, my inner child, just like every level of myself just felt so deeply safe with her. And that is not an experience that I had had with previous partners. There was always some part of my emotional body, physical body that would just feel, you know, tight or off or not quite there um, with others. And yeah, with her, I'm, I'm deeply attracted to her. We laugh a lot. Um, I've seen her do really hard things that built a lot of respect for me. I've seen her, you know, we're not parents yet, but I've seen her parent in different moments with kids or other adults that I'm just like, okay, Mm. you know, this is a very worthy opportunity. This is something that I know that I could be in the, in the wrestle, in the dance, in the beingness of life with her for decades and it would always be juicy and alive and just the right path yeah i feel like uh sometimes with with finding making the right decision and finding the right woman at least for me from my my aspect of things it's like it has to feel like a fuck yes on all fronts yeah um and also low key underrated is eventually if you do see yourself having children, it's like, how is she in relation to kids? How does she actually say like parents or take care of like other kids or even interact with them? Uh, This leads me down uh, a question that I have for you, which is, you know, before you were, uh, you were not necessarily for marriage. Now, obviously you are. Uh, And then, before uh you actually said that you didn't necessarily want to have children it seems to me that you're open to the idea of actually doing that right now i could but you can correct me if i'm wrong uh no totally yeah Uh, to clarify one piece so i wasn't against marriage for the world i was you know temporarily egoically against marriage for myself yeah um but that was you know a smoke screen (laughs) um yeah i think very similar that tracked my relationship to marriage was the same as my relationship to kids. I think that from, you know, my toddler to 20 years old, I was like, of course I'm going to be a dad. Like that's just inevitable. Yes. That's going to happen. And then through a lot of my twenties where in the same, you know, more lying years, egoic years that my mind kind of, you know, scoffed at the idea of marriage for myself. I did the same thing with kids, but again, it was just, it was the same true desire just going underground and my mind having more uh, of the bandwidth for those years that I was like, you know what? The world's overpopulated and maybe not. And, uh, 
but no, yeah. When I met before we were married, you know, several years ago, when I met this woman and we were early dating, I was like, oh, okay, I see why. Mm. I see why people would have kids, and yes, that desire of mine can come up a bit more front and center now because, well, if I'm parenting with this person, then mm. yes, I want her energy imbued in our children, and you know, really one of the core pieces of why I first became self-employed 10 years ago was that like, I, I really had the sense of, I always want to be, be in a position of never needing to call a boss to ask for, for a day off if my wife is sick, or, you know, I want to have a lot of daylight hours that I can be present and available and play with my kids. Like that was really a day one intention, you know, however much I actually let myself have that and be aware of it at, you know, 24 years old. I don't remember, but I know that was always in the mix. And so now we're both self-employed. We both have our own businesses, me and my wife. And, you know, we both work from home and we'll both be quite present and available. And we could each work a couple hours a day on days we want to. And like, yeah, I think just really for us, by our value system, have it all. Live in nature, have a lot of time together play with our kids. You know, I will not be grinding 70 hour work weeks at any age of my kids, you know, zero to 18. Hmm. It's very interesting um, that you say that. And actually one follow-up question I just want to ask is just on the sides, like, you know, how many kids do you feel like you want to have? We've talked about having three. We'll yeah. see, you know, could be one, could be four. We'll see what ends up happening. Um, but yeah, we've, we've got a five-year age gap. I'm 35, she's 29. Um, so I feel like we've got, you know, a few good years ahead of us and we'll, we'll see. All right. See what ends up happening. All right. That's good. And, and I always said that whenever you, whenever you said that to me, I was like, no, like the world needs more Jordan Grace in the world. Uh, I was talking with, uh, interviewing, uh, uh, one of my friends, Zuby, and he was, he's, he wants to have like. 50 children <laughs> it just keeps on getting bigger the more <laughs> he just talks about it and, and i asked him why it's just like um well dudes like i think good people actually are the ones that are not having kids they're the ones that are a little bit more trepidatious about it and the world needs more good people the world needs more jordan grays out there so so i'm glad that uh you've kind of changed your tone about that and i do want to ask you about how life was when you were actually growing up in your household. One of the most disheartening things that I've learned through the research that I've done, you know, for this interview is when you were about 15 years old, uh, you tried to commit suicide. Uh, and, and it was due to a lot of the bullying that was happening that with your siblings towards yourself. So, how exactly has that has that experience uh, not only like you know changed kind of like this course, but how exactly would you approach parenting, knowing what you know now uh, from your previous experience? Yeah, but I think that those fifteen years really shaped me. Like that aspect shaped you know more about my character and you know, wisdom, heart, compassion, like more than anything. So yeah, it was a really significant. Do you, do you mind if I ask you actually, or if you can just uh, outline 
um, why, uh, the reason why you tried to do it in the first place. Why? So why I tried to commit suicide at 15 yeah. was, I mean, I really feel like it, it was just kind of the, the peak overflow of, yeah, from five years old onwards being really heavily bullied and excluded by my siblings. You know, there was, there were very explicit repercussions, consequences around physical violence in our house. So, you know, my parents were like, you know, don't hit each other, don't ever hit each other. And so that was, you know, off the table. But then my siblings basically, I was the youngest, I am the youngest of three. Um, and so my siblings basically said, okay, well, we can't hit him, but, you know, on the emotional abuse level, let's just like do everything we possibly can. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, from five to 15, just the, you know, sheer amount of that. And I'm picturing the the Raiders of the Lost Ark um, ball, <laughs> just like the Tumbling momentum ball. of that. Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, the, the shame, the pain, the hurt, the anger of feeling that level of pain and the pain feeling quite invisible in my family system. Like it just, you know, I was quite depressed from like eight years old through 15 and yeah, it didn't feel like that pain was ever seen or Mm. attuned to. And so those were the years where it really got to pick up a lot of momentum. And so at 15, yeah, I mean, the, the inner dialogue wasn't like, oh, they'll be better off without me. It felt quite like I'm doing them a favor. Like they don't want me here. So I might as well just do the thing and leave. Um, and it, it felt very loud and obvious. Like that just felt like, okay, well, if members of my immediate family can't figure out how to love me, then I doubt anyone in the world will. So let's just like check out before we get too deep into this whole life thing. Mm. And so how that will inform my parenting. I mean, there are ways that are going to be more overt and then ways that I think are just, you know, imbued in my being for having lived it. Mm. Um, I was, I was dog sitting our our neighbor's dog last night and the, 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 this relates, you'll see how it comes back to them. (laughs) (laughs) And the dog is part Shih Tzu and apparently Shih Tzus have like short, like nasal passages and they can have breathing issues. And this dog who is very sweet and loving was having reverse sneezing attacks and it was new to him and it was scary. And he was just like, just yeah, like doing this rapid, weird breathing thing. And it was brand new to him. And it basically was like having a panic attack. Mm. And I just intuitively knew to like, just like the way that I held him and attuned to his system and like breathe through it and just, you know, let his body's nervous system borrow my nervous system to really drop in and attune to what he was experiencing. You know, he went from really panicking more than I've ever seen a dog panic in my whole life. Mm -hmm. And I love dogs, spent a lot of time with dogs to, and like, you know, jittering and heart pounding to calming completely in, you know, under two minutes. And I just feel like, you know, compassion comes from healed pain comes from having walked into the fire and then holding someone else's hand who's you know looking at going into the fire for the first time and going hey it's safe like i've been there i'll walk in with you it's okay you're gonna make it through this 
And so I feel like my capacity, my, you know, especially emotional level, my bandwidth for really emotionally tuning to my children, however many we might have, just feels like, you know, there's nothing more second nature to me than seeing, being with, holding someone's heart. And so I don't think that there is any possible scenario where my child is in a multi-year depressive episode and I'm not aware of it. Mm -hmm. I think safety is a big one, especially, well, you know, we can't blame our parents, but they just did not have the tools that we did. And um, I've been starting to learn about uh, how to raise a toddler because uh, my daughter's about two years old right now. And you know how a lot, everyone talks about the terrible twos, right? When the reality is that is your perception because you have not learned what is going on with your toddler and you are reacting to what they're doing, whether it's a tantrum or whether there's, you know, not listening with uh with your own perceptions and also with the unhealing shit that you have going on inside of yourself and your body so it's it's just kind of like one of the things about children especially is like to to let them know that they have a safe space and that they can you know pretty much use that safe space to tell their parents anything that they want and sometimes like you know us as parents we kind of or not us as parents but some parents would be like stop crying or you know whatever it is and then that itself uh, denies the kid of actually feeling safe, of knowing that they can actually have emotions and knowing that they can lean into that. So, yeah, man, it's a, uh, yeah, parenting is such like, I think what you said in the beginning, it's like owning a business, being in a relationship and having a child. These are like the the biggest journeys that we can ever take mm-hmm. in our lives. Yeah. It's a, it's a 24 yeah. seven, you know, dojo, ashram, meditation mat. It's just like, <laughs> this is the practice and it's always working you. Yeah. And it's uh, a lot of times when you see, let's just say issues that come up in any one of these areas, they're not necessarily issues with the external. they are issues with the internal. Uh, it's like, they actually say, it's like every problem you face in your business is actually a problem that you're not attending to. And every single problem that you're dealing with in the relationship is basically a problem that you're not attending to it's something maybe like even the trauma that was happening from before uh have you been working with entrepreneurs and coaching them through their relationships what exactly have you seen as uh, as common uh l- number one common fallacies that every single entrepreneur kind of goes through when it gets into when they get into a relationship and common problems that they face usually yeah i think that there's there's levels to it i think that you know, the default relationship to relationships that society has is quite underdeveloped. And how, how so? I mean, the how default so? narrative of long term relationship is really this codependent need, you know, like just it's about my needs. What do I get from this? And if you're not flawlessly meeting my needs, then something's wrong with you or this relationship. And I need to go find someone else who will flawlessly meet my needs. And it's, you know, it's very egoic and self-serving and okay, well, you know, I'll do these things for you, but you have to do these things flawlessly for me and to never lapse in that. 
and it's you know it's codependent like you know trauma bond of like okay well I'll be in a relationship with the projection of who I believe you need to be. You'll be in a relationship with the projection of who you think I need to be. And we'll both be miserable, but we'll be getting enough of our needs met that we'll just stay in jail together forever. And, you know, it'll be painful, but we'll try and ignore it. And we'll both just simmer up with resentment over the course of however many months and years and then go, you know what? This one's broken. I'm out of here. I'm going to go find someone else who I will do the exact same dance with because it's my stuff. I can't totally laugh because that is yeah it's just uh, that's like the reality that a lot of people face but it sounds so like satirish it is real it's real yeah I think that you know I saw a post of yours from a few days ago on Instagram about how you know to live in a way that really honors your body you have to do what the majority of people are not doing and it's very much the same way, you know, when I like the default depiction of intimate relationships in TV, movies, and even song lyrics, it's painful for me to be like, oh, like, I know that this sells concert tickets, but like, man, this is terrible. And please stop spinning this narrative. And you, you know, you really do have to, yeah, in intimate relationships, in relationship to health, in friendships, you know, the default friendship for most people across most developed nations is just this like we get together and we bitch you know we bitch about our lives we bitch about Mm. our friends we it's this it's this enabling commiseration of oh i hate my boyfriend oh my boyfriend's so annoying he is the worst you you deserve a better boyfriend like (laughs) there's just there's no responsibility there's no accountability and you know people are just staying in this delayed adolescence for decades And I have a lot of compassion for it. I'm not like, oh, people are messing up. This is fed to us. You know, like Mm. the the healthy role models are few and far between. So, of course, we're doing the thing that all of our peers are doing. And there is a far better way that is rooted in Mm. truth and self-responsibility and accountability and, you know, relating to relationships from a place of service and character growth versus, you know, being a leech that just wants to like suck value from the other. Are you enjoying the show thus far? We go through so many resources and links with the podcast. It's tough to keep up. I get it. That's why Dan and the rest of the team put together the High Performance 7. It's a free online course that helps entrepreneurs get lean, build muscle, and increase energy in a way that fits their lifestyle. We go over things like how to burn fat like a 20-year-old, the lazy man's way to building muscle, the 10-minute Superman system, the lead domino that makes all other things easy, and so much more. The best part? As a valued listener of the show, you can access the High Performance 7 100% free of charge. That's right, for simply being awesome and tuning in. To get full access, all you have to do is go to www.highperformance7.com. It's high performance, all spelled out, and the number 7.com. And fill out the short form there for us to give you full access. Once again, www.highperformance7.com. Now, back to the show. 
so, so you mentioned something like uh, this is actually perpetuated a lot by the songs that we listen to, by the, the mm-hmm. movies that we watch. Uh, how exactly does media propagate this idea of like what the what the actual relationship looks like? And I'll, I'll use an example. There's always like this some movie where uh, they're so like fucking toxic towards each other. Right. But they don't realize it because it's like a romantic comedy. They're like, you know, they if there was like if you're looking at two people doing these things to each other, you'd be like, wow, these people in real life, they would be crazy. And then you always have the guy running after the taxi cab at the end of the movie being like, no, 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 stop. I was, you know, you know what? I was wrong. You were the one all along. And then that's like two crazy people Mm -hmm. like getting together. So. What in what ways do you feel like the media propagates this idea of what a relationship should look like? Mainstream media is really just giving people what they want. If the majority are, you know, it is what sells. It is what gets eyeballs. It is what, you know, gets press. And of course, you know, to some extent, whether consciously or unconsciously, and I actually see it as innocent. I think that most people do this unknowingly, you know, the artists themselves, the script writers, the you know musicians writing the lyrics. Um, you know, they are speaking of their own lived experience and they're also speaking to things that they know the vast majority of people can relate to because that's just how relationships are. And so I, I don't see it as necessarily malicious, but, you know, they are saying the thing that they experienced, they're saying the thing they know will resonate and it gets eyeballs, it gets butts and seats, it gets revenue because that is the vast majority if you, Dan Go, stood on a stage in front of, you know, a million people just randomly selected for, you know, from North America, and you said, you know, 20 of your top beliefs for a good life, a good percentage of the audience would be like, that's insane. That's, yeah, that's not sustainable. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Who thinks that way? And like, you know, mm-hmm. there is that part in both of us that I think, really sees that as beneficial and true and you know Mm. common common wisdom isn't very or common sense isn't very common so yeah i mean Mm. what ways specifically yeah i mean even that fantasy that you brought up of like chasing someone down the street or the the boom box at night or you know showing up at the airport (laughs) the last second like that is a theme that is resonant for a lot of the and this is the default state of most adults it's the wounded inner child that wants like that was the moment we all crave you know that people with wounded inner children that are underattended to craved in their childhood that you know maybe they had a you know physically or emotionally absent parent and so this grand gesture of I was stupid and I love you and I see it now and you're the best thing in my life. And oh my God, I will worship you forever. If you just give me one small chance, like that's exactly what the wounded inner child and mass, you know, on mass adults mm. craves to hear. And so those moments really attune to that, to the like, Oh, like, that just, it's this deep primal itch that wants to be scratched and it's never being scratched in their day-to-day lives. So seeing this like over the top grand gesture in a movie, you know, brings on the waterworks and they ball and they tell all their friends to see it. And then, you know, it's a box office smash. So that's, you know, just that one example, but it really plays into our wounding well. And because of these unhealed places, you know, we are quite manipulatable. 
Mm. So if you were uh, to make a movie based on what a a very healthy relationship looks like without all the bells and whistles, uh, without all the chasing the, the, the person at the airport and trying to like, you know, express their love for them, what would that movie look like to you? So the first thing to note would be that in the current modern climate, it would be profoundly boring to 97% of, of you know, it would not be, it would be like a really big, important cult hit for 1% of the market. Like, and, and truly, you know, like I, this is, you know, the fact that reality TV does it well, does as well as it does. Like, again, it's speaking to that need drama sells. We want to see people being a flaming hot mess and, you know, the real housewives of whatever place or Jersey Shore or, you know, I don't know what a more modern example would be, but selling sunset, like these things, they hook eyeballs because, you know, drama sells. So the default reality of a healthy, emotionally tuned relationship or marriage through the eyes of ego, through the eyes of drama, it's quite boring. And that doesn't mean that it's actually boring. It just means that through the eyes of ego, it's boring. Through the eye, you know, through the sight of heart or, you know, someone that has this emotional attunement or depth to really feel into, it's the most magnetically alive dance possible. Like there's so much heart and tenderness and aliveness that is in the simplest moments of you or your wife deciding who's going to change your kid's diaper. It's not these grand sweeping romantic gestures of, and then he chased me to the airport with a thousand roses and, you know, a band playing trumpets and flash mob proposals. Like it's very (laughs) calm and beautiful and nuanced. And there's just, there's this depth there that in contrast to reality TV, it's, it's, you know, not much at all, but the actual thing. Yeah. What are these two people doing with each other? What are the boring things that these two people are doing with each they other? They are aware of and prioritize their own values and needs. They are aware of and prioritize each other's values and needs. They are in a constant dancing within the paradox of independence and intimacy, relationship to self, relationship to other. You know, there are these things that there's no black and white finite spot on the continuum where you stop and go, okay, this is the perfect amount of togetherness and separateness. It's a thing that is always shifting. You know, you've likely heard the quote, no man steps in the same river twice because the river changes and the man changes. Like every moment is new, depending on how much sleep one of you or both of you had, depending on your toddler's mood that day. Like there are these things that it just, it's a dance. And I think that can often be one of the pieces that a lot of the entrepreneurs that come to me uh, want to nail is, you know, it's the over-optimizer syndrome of like, I want to find the 100% perfectly aligned, you know, never flawed partner for me that bolsters me in every possible way. You know, what's the perfect number of times we should be having sex every week? What's the perfect date night that I can just do every week, rinse and repeat? Like, you know, the things that are most important in our life, our relationship to our kids, our relationship to our business or our careers, our relationship to our relationship. Like it isn't a finite static spot on the map. It's, this is the dance that I will never stop dancing. And there's no other option. 
there isn't a, but just give me the, the one thing. Like if someone came to you and said, you know, what is the one isolation exercise that I can do with my body? You know, dumbbell curls, please say dumbbell, dumbbell curls. What's the one isolation movement that if I do, my whole body will be jacked and flawless for life. Just like that isn't answerable. It's a multivariant, multi-factor thing. We can say many things, but, you know, it's a totality thing and calibration is huge. You know, who's the person that I'm talking to? Did you have parents that were under-attuned, over-attuned? Did they bulldoze your boundaries? Did they listen to you and respect you as a person, you know, even before you were a teenager or an adult? Like, there's, there's so much calibration and nuance to do with a person based off of their history, their goals, where they're going, what their current situation is. So yeah, my go for it. I was going to ask, how do you feel like parenting uh, has an effect on someone's future relationships? The way Got that it. they were parented, so to speak. I mean, yeah. hugely. Yeah. I think that the, the most significant, so there's this phrase of primary attachment figure, like our primary attachment figures in childhood are inevitably our parents or whoever our key caregivers were. Maybe it was a grandparent. Maybe it was a sibling. Um, yeah, like those people really forge our love map, you know, how we expect to be in a relationship, not just with our primary partners, but all people going forwards, but especially our primary partners, because that's where the closest mirror is. And so that's where those, you know, deepest themes get bubbled up. Uh, Harville Hendricks once said, marriage is about the work of completing childhood. And it's just, it's so true that whatever the deepest shadow aspects are, all these things that were formed from, you know, zero to five, for the most part, you're going to meet a lot of those pieces when you're, you know, years deep into a relationship, into a marriage and go, oh, I don't know where this piece is coming from. I know it's coming from somewhere, but you know, that's exactly those mirrors I was talking about, about business and parenting and marriage, like the deepest stuff will bubble up and it will be hard, but it'll be a gift. It'll be in service to you and everyone around you. So how does one break past uh, these, I guess you could say these standards and these things that we have learned from as children? Uh, what are some of the tools that they can use to, to one, become aware uh, and two, to, uh, to resolve whatever part of that, uh, whatever part of life that is, that was, uh, I won't say holding them back, but the part that, that, that keeps on showing up that they're not necessarily attending to. Yeah, in the, first, the first step is just being willing to be in these types of, you know, tight loop feedback mechanisms, whether that's relationship or parenting or, you know, however the thing is showing itself, you know, a single person who is in relationship with a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, talk-based therapist, like, or a really close friendship. Like these things can come from multiple sources. So first being willing to even engage those kinds of containers. Second step is awareness, whether it bubbles up for you or it comes via a reflection from a partner or, you know, non-shaming human entity who you feel like has your back. You know, you become aware of the thing and go, oh, here's the thing that I'm noticing for the first time or for the 30th time. And there's something here. I mean, the awareness of it and just the being in right relationship with truth in right relationship with reality is a lot of it because with awareness, you can then make a new decision. Okay. 
when we get into these kinds of fights and I start to yell, do I want to do that? Is this the choice I'm going to continue to make? Even if it feels sticky or clunky or strange to not do whatever the thing is, fill in the blank. Um, even if that feels strange up front, am I willing to embrace this transition and let it be clunky and then get slowly better at doing a different thing? I feel like uh, sometimes when especially when people don't want to face that level of awareness or necessarily do that work, then they really go harder into uh, certain behaviors, uh, harder into certain Mm -hmm. modes of thinking. Um, One of these things that pop up in my mind was uh, uh, there was actually like a breakup that you helped me through uh, not so long ago. Or actually, it was a very long time ago. What the hell am I saying? A very long time ago. It was about like 10 years ago. It's almost like a decade ago. And after that particular breakup, I actually ended up going like hard into red pill thinking and hard into like the masculine, the masculinity, uh, you know, range of things. I actually like to call, I actually like to call it like the, the opposite of feminism, which is like, you know, it has some really good parts, but, you know, when you get really radical with it, then you turn into like a radical masculine mm-hmm. guy or you know radical feminists or like kind of two sides of the same coin so i find that a lot of people do especially when they are not looking and trying to attend these uh things that they come up with and these uh these things that they have learned since childhood they really go into these like uh you know these behaviors or these these we can call them mental models uh of that actually perpetuate the same things that they're not even attending or healing. So I wanted to get uh, what your opinion was on specifically uh, red pill thinking uh, and this uh, and this move towards uh, I won't I don't want to call it extreme masculinity, but uh, but towards you know just just you know they do have some good points, but if you go too hard with it, then. You know, you can you can kind of become a little bit of a zealot. So, what what are your thoughts on that? I have many thoughts on that. Yeah, <laughs> the so yeah. Whenever we get, you know, whenever something in the life happens that points to a spot of you know potential healing in us, I often picture the ego as being like this junkyard dog that really wants to guard the thing that is about to be felt or shifted or healed. And the junkyard dog gets really loud and vicious and violent and barks and bears its teeth. And, you know, it is very common that these patterns, yeah, exactly like you said, they get the loudest, you know, when they're on the precipice of being healed, being absolved. Um, you know, similar to how I've had many clients come to me that were engaged to a partner that they were very in love with and, wow, this is amazing. But once, you know, they put the ring on the finger or they were the ones who had a ring put on their finger. You know, when they got engaged, then the whole relationship got put under a different microscope and they were like, Oh my God. Okay. Well, is this the right person for me? And one person forever. And Oh man, this is a big deal. Like, you know, the ego, whatever the unhealed stuff is, Oh no, is this relationship going to be like what my childhood was in a negative sense? Like, of course this stuff gets activated, but it bubbles up to be healed. So Coming back to the the red pill, and that's I think that's totally on point. I think that, yeah, you know, the gap between 
um, radical feminists, you know, really polarized thinking to men's rights activists, to MGTOW, to red pill thought, um, you know, they're really one and the same. They're the exact same um, thing. You know, they're just different sides of the continuum. But as Dr. Robert Glover, the author of No More Mr. Nice Guy, wrote, the opposite of crazy is still crazy. And that's not me saying that they're crazy. It's just, you know, it's a full circle back to the same spot. So, yeah, I mean, Red Pill, MGTOW, I feel like they have a lot of overlap, those two communities. MGTOW being men going their own way. It's really this, you know, it's a community centered around pain. And it's an easy seductive place to get lured into when you've been through a divorce or you, you know, went through criminal court and you lost, you know, custody of your kids or you picked a partner with high narcissistic traits and then you demonize an entire gender. And so you, you know, you put up your barrier of, oh, you know what? This whole game is rigged and I'm actually... I'd be way smarter to just opt out of life altogether or not living, but like, you know, being in the flow of real life. And so, you know, yeah, men either go to this place of I'm going to gamify, codify relationships. And it's really just a rebranding of, of game, of pickup, of, you know, how do I be so firmly locked into my head that I can't feel the flow of love for a second I am exclusively in the game of extracting energy from the opposite sex, from my partners to, you know, get my still existing human needs met, but without any emotional involvement. How can I make, how can I be completely cut off from, you know, the neck down and just be this walking robot with superficial needs and really opting out emotionally? So it's, it's a safe, appealing place to be and by safe i mean egoically safe not ultimately safe mm-hmm. yeah and and suffice to this yeah i do feel that they like some of the core concepts are actually not bad i mean some of the things that they fight for is not bad i mean like the thing with that you said with custody uh the fact that the courts are kind of like skewed towards a certain direction i feel like uh you know, the concept of uh, creating yourself, having a mission and all this kind of stuff. I, I do feel like some of the concepts are great, kind of like just how like a lot of the concepts in feminism are great. I mean, you know, just equal pay, like, you know, just women being able to vote and all this kind of stuff. It's just when it gets taken to the extreme side, that to me is a signal that someone's trying to protect themselves mm-hmm. from a specific type of hurt or reacting in a certain way where they're like, they put up this like coat of armor where like, I will never go through this ever again. And then everything that they listen to and read, it actually corroborates with the thing, their perception of the situation that actually happened in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I was actually having a, a conversation uh, with, with a friend uh, and he, he was really just into like kind of seeped into uh, this mode of thinking. And then I asked him as well, it's like, well, you know, who are you surrounding yourself with? Who are you getting this information from? Um, most of the people that he's getting information from are people in failed relationships, uh, people who, you know, make a lot of money, but they're in failed relationships. They can't really hold one down or they keep on seeking the short-term gratification of trying to go keep on chasing women. And then I asked him, I was like, okay, so 
Do you have any examples in your life where you're around successful men who have families and love them and have a really good relationship with relationships and women? And then he was just like, mm-hmm. I can't. He had to think for like a long time. And and the thing is, is that like when it comes to this stuff, especially like we surround ourselves with the echo chambers that we want to perpetuate in terms of the ideas that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I've been through that whole thing of, uh, you know, of Red Bull thinking. And I do believe that it's brought me some benefit and also has given me a little bit of balance. But at some point in time, you got to like teeter back to the balance from the extremes. Mm-hmm. And you got to understand that uh, a lot of the things that uh, we do as a reaction, uh, they are, we're doing it because we're trying to protect ourselves from something specific, whatever that specific thing is, you got to like be real about it. Uh, so yeah, I, I've always wanted to kind of like ask you specifically about that question. Um, because I know you come from a, a really just like super balanced view on masculine and feminine. Uh, and yeah, like uh, in terms of like masculine and the feminine, like you actually said something in a in a podcast interview I was listening to, which is the fact that sometimes like guys don't even realize the fact that they do have masculine and feminine tendencies inside of them. No one has ever skewed in one specific direction. Uh, and and what are your kind of experiences with with that? Not saying like you know guys are feminine or anything like that, but. Like, what is the, what is the thing that you realize or something that you've uh, seen with your own clients in regards to the masculine and the feminine energies that lay inside of them? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing to name is that I see masculine and feminine as just energies. And these energies are universal themes that live in all bodies and all experiences of life. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap with, I think the mind, or sorry, the masculine can be kind of shorthanded as like, the mind, the ego, you know, rational thought, um, mm. and the feminine can be more the, you know, the body, the felt sense, the ever changingness of everything in the world all the time, and so there is no escaping both. You know, we all have all parts, and yeah, you know, one thing I want to circle back on with the kind of red pill style thinking is it's ultimately about control. How do I get a sense of control in relationships and control as a primary driving force will suffocate any relationship ever. Like Mm -hmm. it just, it's antithetical to any sense of connection and flow and love. If you're looking to white knuckle a sense of control from your relationships. And so that's where either side of those schools of thought of red pill thinking or of radical feminism can really, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater is I'm trying to control, gamify this whole thing so that fill in the blank, so that I don't get hurt, so that I don't go through the thing that I went through again. So on the masculine feminine thing, I think it's also important to name that just holistically speaking, there has been a fairly mass demonization of the feminine in the world. And I'm not just talking about, I'm not talking about women, I'm talking about the feminine in the world, in life, in work, in male and female bodies, like just in general, like there's, there's even, you know, a real disassociation from the feminine in a lot of radical feminists. You know, I've seen, uh, I remember, you know, I, I try to keep my finger on the pulse of 
certain communities to the extent that I'm aware of what they're talking about, but not to the extent that I start to lose faith in humanity completely. <laughs> and, you know, I remember reading this radical feminist blog that was like, any act, any sexual act is an act of submission. You know, maybe it was like any, any sexual act with a man is an act of submission and should just not happen. And so, you know, it's, it's anti-feminist to give blowjobs. It's anti-feminist to be penetrated in any way, you know, by a male partner, because then you're submitting to the patriarchy. It's like, okay, what, what are we talking about here? Like sexual intercourse is now inherently like anti, it just, you know, there's a certain level where it's like, whatever led you to this path, like you've gone too far down it. And this is like a little off. And again, the exact same themes exist in the red pill community. They're just like, okay, this is just, you know, the way they're relating to it is just so far off the deep end that like this isn't productive for anyone. And the deeper part of you knows that. Yeah. It seems so weird. Cause I feel like there's uh you said there's like this war on femininity and, and to me, uh, maybe because I spend a little bit more time on Twitter, it feels like there's this war on masculinity and guys actually being men. Um, and we can actually see that a lot with like testosterone levels plummeting at this point. Uh, and you know, that, yeah, I guess it's a war on just like genders in general, you know, it's just a war on not, in, not genders specifically, but everyone feels like there's this war against whoever they are as people. And then they just take it upon themselves to fight against that war. Yeah. I mean, the, the hyperpolarization and demonization of all these different aspects, it's really, you know, it is what's happening in the collective is happening in the individual. I think that the themes that are showing themselves on mass and social media and, you know, literature and whatever, YouTube talks, um, you know, all these things are just showing what is the actual state of integration of the average person in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to integrate literally means to, you know, bring pieces together, to unite the whole. And disintegration is to demonize and make wrong these parts. And so if, yeah, if masculinity, if femininity if masculine, if feminine are being, you know, demonized, polarized, made wrong, ridiculed, shamed in all these different ways, then guess what? In the average individual psyche, that is the same thing. And whether it's showing up as you making a certain behavioral choice of yours wrong or not, you know, being, you know, being against the feminine could be as simple as a man who, you know, one of his parents dies and then at their funeral, he chokes back tears because he doesn't want to be a pussy. You know, like that's the demonization of the feminine. It's not, mm. Oh, women shouldn't wear makeup or, or like skirts or anti-feminist. It's Oh, like the flow of emotion is trying to move through my body and I'm choking it out because that's not allowed. Like that's disintegration on the individual micro level, which I can give a thousand examples of, but again, what's happening in the collective is happening in the individual. And so what's the way through that is do your individual work, you know, reclaim these parts, you know, you as a person. What does the individual work look like? The individual work looks like noticing the places where you have closure or rigidity or tightness or fear or anxiety, you know, one of the quote unquote negative emotions that you might have like, oh, like I have resistance. I have disapproval of some piece of myself. And again, it all starts with awareness. 
whether it's you coming to the awareness on your own or someone, you know, giving you a reflection of, oh, I noticed that when this happens, you have this response. They go, oh, I guess I do. What's there to look at? You know, am I willing to have these reflections shown to me with the awareness? Then will I make a new choice? You know, you, you note it. Like, oh, look at that. You own it. Yeah, I do that. How interesting. And then you either drop, shift, or integrate the thing, which is, you know, self-development as a phrase is, I think, somewhat useless. Like, really, the work is self-acceptance. Can I accept this part of myself? I don't have to love it immediately, but can I have some degree of approval for, you know what? I have tear ducts. Maybe I can cry. You know what? I have a jealous part of me. I have an envious part of me. Can I, you know, can I befriend that even 1% to begin with? Oh, look at that. That's a part of me. Okay. I'm not going to make it wrong. I'm not going to demonize it. And again, that's what's happening in the collective. When the individual goes, oh, there's this part of me and I hate it and I can't accept that. And no, that's not in there. And that's what has people go, that thing in you is wrong. That shouldn't exist. That's incorrect. It's like you're just externalizing what you do in your own internal process. Fucking powerful. So I wanted to kind of segue this into this quote that I heard you say, which is saying that finding yourself is like sliding in a mud pit. Have you? Do you remember yourself saying that at all? No. Oh my gosh. I've been through so much of your, <laughs> I've been through like so much of your material. I've written hundreds uh, of articles. I don't remember a lot of it. You said this in the podcast interview. I forgot from, from which person, but, uh, but yeah, it's like finding yourself is like sliding in a mud pit. Uh, now, even though you don't remember saying this, it does come from some other, some place inside of you. Uh, what does that mean to you? When it reminds me of the the Carl Jung quote of there is no coming to consciousness without pain. I think that the, the early days of coming to consciousness, of coming to self-awareness, of saying yes to being on the path, the path of truth, the path of self-development, path of self-acceptance, whatever you want to, you know, relate to it as, you know, it's quite common. Well, it's it's necessary. When someone wants to go from numbness to aliveness, you have to go through pain. Like mm-hmm. the reason you are in numbness is because there's some difficult, painful, sticky emotions that you didn't have the tools or ability or time or space to really be with. And so it got relegated to your shadow. It's like, are you now willing to move through all of the shit that you avoided? And again, I imagine there could be quite a similar place with people saying yes to transforming their bodies after years or decades of neglect of, you know what? It's not about shame. It's not about making myself wrong, but I have neglected myself. I have said, I've turned my back on X, Y, and Z habits and the current state of my reality reflects that. I don't have the energy to play with my kids because I've let myself go a little bit. And so there is, I think a lot of the mud pit analogy especially applies to this, you know, this early jumping off a cliff and going, okay, there's going to be stuff for me to be with that you know, is probably uncomfortable because I've avoided it for this log. <laughs> and if I'm going to do it now, it could be sticky and challenging. And 
there's a big difference between being covered in mud and being in resistance to it and going, oh, it's dirty and I hate this versus this is actually really funny and really enjoyable. And me being this immersed in, you know, the nature muck of life, like, sure, I can resist it and fight it and think this is bad. Or I can go, I've never felt more alive. This is actually kind of great. It's fucking powerful right there. Love that. Uh, okay. So you've went from coaching entrepreneurs uh, with the relationships to writing blogs that have been read by tens of millions of people in the world, which is mind fucking boggling. Like, Over a hundred million people now. A hundred million. Holy shit. Like, so, and then you, you've gone on to be a, a bestseller uh, to doing courses. So what is the next step for Jordan Gray right now? The next step that I will publicly talk about, because <clears throat> there's a few things coming that I'm excited about, but they're like, they're not quite talk aboutable yet. Mm-hmm. The next thing, and really my my biggest thing in life right now is just like, yeah, we just bought this house eight months ago. It's very immersed in nature and there's a lot of work that it needs. So it's kind of been a big year of like offline work. I've been doing a lot of just like really being in nature, being with our land, you know, doing like our house is 120 years old. We've got a, a good sized chunk of, of land to work with. And so a lot of my time and energy has been going there. On the work side, I still have a handful of one-on-one clients and I am looking at making two more courses that are a bit a bit more outside of the narrow scope of just intimate relationships that I have a lot of energy for and I'm very excited about. So those will probably be coming out over the next one to three months. But yeah, more of the same. Blog posts, awesome. courses, coaching, and loving my wife well. Amazing. And uh, final question for you, which is if you knew you only had one year left on this earth, what would you change about your life and why? I mean, my first thought is at this point, I I have never had less to change. Like I feel so aligned with where I'm at. A year left, what would I change? I would I would write up my will to make sure that my wife gets all my money. Um, <laughs> so I just you know, I'd make sure she was taken care of. Um, not that she needs that. She has her own profitable business. But yeah, honestly, the only thing that would change right now is I would start lifting more. I feel like I've I've lapsed in my weightlifting, which <laughs> might be like a really superficial answer, like compared to what I could say, but like, but seriously, like I love where we're living. I love my marriage. I love where I'm at in business. Yeah. I would just I would keep doing everything I'm doing. I would just use my kettlebells more. Let's talk about this after this interview. Uh, Deal. <laughs> all right, all right. This will be the last question. If you could, uh, if you could actually write anything on the billboard for the entire world to see, what exactly would you write on it? Spend time with the parts of yourself that are calling for more love. And with that, uh, I must say thank you so much, Jordan, for jumping on and uh, having this conversation. My absolute pleasure. Uh, yeah, man. I appreciate you uh, as a friend and, uh, you know, as someone that really just like 
knows their shit. So if people want to get in contact with you or uh, see your stuff, where can they access you? My website is the main hub, jordangrayconsulting.com. Awesome. And uh, yeah, man, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, yeah, I really do appreciate you. Ditto. All right. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit subscribe on whichever platform you're tuning in from. Help Dan and the rest of the team get the word out to more entrepreneurs like yourself and leave an honest review for the show. It would mean the world to us if you can help in those two ways. Dan reviews all the feedback on the show, so we can't wait to hear what you've got for us. This show is made for your benefit, so be sure to reach out if you have any ideas on topics that we can cover on the show or people we should interview. You're listening to the High Performance Founder Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time. Yeah.